You're listening to Preserves, a Manitoba food history podcast, exploring the rich, flavorful history of Manitoba food and the people who make it, sell it, and eat it. From the packing table to the dinner table, from restaurant specials to grandma's secret recipes, we consider the cultural, social, and commercial aspects of Manitoba food and what it means to us. I'm your host, Ken Davies. As per usual, I'm joined by Manitoba business historian, Professor Janice Thiessen. Hi, Kent. What's in the pantry for us today? Today we're listening to some fish stories. Usually that phrase means we'll be hearing some tall tales. I assure you, while at some point these stories seem a little unlikely, they are historically accurate. Right on. Fish has always been an important staple food in Manitoba. And one of the fish we're most famous for in Manitoba is the subject of our first story, brought to us by student Henry Vandenberg. It's the name of our baseball team and a favorite among patrons of the Gimli Fish Market. Goldeye. Goldeye, the little fish that conquered the world. The story of Robert Firth and the ascent of the Winnipeg Goldeye. Today we know the Goldeye as an exotic and expensive dish served in the finest restaurants. It enjoys an international reputation It is a signature regional dish of Manitoba, and Winnipeg in particular, but it wasn't always so. There was a time when the Goldeye was considered worthless bycatch and was thrown on fields for fertilizer or fed to dogs. The transformation hinged on a fortunate turn of events involving a failed butcher shop, an enterprising English immigrant, and a river full of little fish. The Goldeye is an undistinguished fish. It is bluish in silver color and rather small rarely reaching a foot in length, and are usually about a pound in weight. Goldeye range through north-central North America, from Alberta to the Great Lakes, and as far south as Oklahoma, but it is mostly found in large northern waters of the Hudson Bay drainage. They like quiet areas of large silty streams and connected lakes. They have a mushy, unpalatable flesh, and were not really sought after. They were usually just a bycatch while pursuing more desirable species. They could be cold smoked or preserved by hanging them over a fire, but even then, They were still largely used for dog food or simply disposed of on fields for fertilizer or just to get them out of the lake. The gold eye seemed destined to remain an obscure, little-known and little-loved little fish. However, it seems the gold eye was on a collision course with Robert Firth. Firth was an English immigrant who had run away as a teen to work on a North Sea fishing boat as a cook. He later set out to see more of the world, finally settling in Winnipeg in 1886. He started a butcher shop on North Main Street, but found that it wasn't thriving. He was looking for a way to supplement his income somehow. He remembered his experience as a cook on the North Sea and the smokehouses of his native hull where the kippered herring were prepared and decided to see if he could add to his product line with some smoked fish. At that time in the 1880s, fish in the Red River were as thick as mosquitoes on a summer cottage screen door. He would fish the river at night and set the catch in a makeshift smoker made of a barrel He had some success selling to other shops, especially with sauger and pickerel, and so he continued his enterprise. Then one fateful day, he had some gold eye in the smoker and let it smoke longer than usual. It looked like a disaster. The fish had gone beyond smoked and were half cooked. The color was a copper red and the flesh was pink to red with a firm flaky texture. Always adventurous, he tried it anyway, and to his surprise and delight, the fish was delicious. The cheap, unpalatable little gold eye was transformed into a culinary delight. He had stumbled onto a secret that elevated the gold eye from dog food to eventually becoming the food of prime ministers, 
presidents and kings. His hot smoking process was about to start the little fish's ascent in the culinary world. Imitation is the sincerest form of flattery, and soon fishermen were coming up with their own smoking process. The type of wood used for smoking was an issue of profound importance now. Willow gave the fish its distinctive copper color, but oak and maple gave it a deeper flavor. They experimented with soaking the fish in brine with their own mix of spices. The recipes were guarded fiercely. The fish was gaining a local reputation as a delicacy and might have remained a local phenomenon except for the decision of the CPR chef to include it on the menu, first in the dining room at the Royal Alexandra Hotel in Winnipeg and then in the dining cars on the railway. The little fish was now being mentioned on the society page. Restaurants in Montreal and Toronto started to ask for Winnipeg Goldeye. Soon there was a demand for Goldeye from the American centers of New York and Chicago. In 1919, Goldeye was served to King George V and U.S. President Woodrow Wilson at the Grand Café in New York. It made such an impression that the King requested Goldeye on his next Canadian visit. An unforeseen consequence of the success of the Goldeye was that the little fish that used to annoy the fishermen became a prized catch. The price was rising dramatically, but the little fish was now getting harder to find, and the demand started to outstrip the supply. Until 1929, Manitoba produced more than a million pounds of gold eye every year. Then in 1930, it dropped to a half million, and by 1933, a quarter million. By 1946, the yield was down to 70,000 pounds. The fish had gone missing, but the demand remained. The fish called gold eye on the menu was often actually Tullaby or Cisco, which looked similar, but was a pale imitation of the real thing. Eventually, other populations were discovered in Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Northwest Ontario. The trade in gold eye continued. The mystery of the missing gold eye was solved when it was discovered that most of the gold eye caught in the three-inch gill nets were immature and had not yet reached spawning age. In addition, a series of control dams on the Saskatchewan River Delta near the Paw were playing havoc with the gold eye. In the spring, mature gold eye would swim into the marshes, spawn, and leave while the water was high. However, the new fingerlings would find themselves trapped behind the dam because the summer water levels were lower. They would eventually perish there due to oxygen depletion. A system was devised to open the dam periodically to let them out. But what became of Robert Firth? The unlikely butcher who turned the little fish into an international sensation. Robert Firth's butcher shop did eventually fail, but it didn't work out too badly for him. He was able to devote more time to fishing, working a net downstream between a man on the shore and another on a small boat. He built a bigger smoker on the banks of the river. He thrived as a full-time fisherman and smoker until some of the bigger fish companies started plants in Winnipeg. He was then hired as a smoker in 1900 and worked at his craft until 1932, retiring at the age of 78. He also taught his art to his five sons, one of whom was still working at Booth Fisheries as a smoker, at least until the late 30s. The process hasn't changed that much over the years. The results depend entirely on the skill and experience of the smoker. Even though the commercial smoking of gold eye is localized in Winnipeg, there is still considerable variability in the end product based on the smoker. One local smoker, Chef Kevin Funk from Hidden Haven Homestead, a delightful informative YouTube channel on eating from local food systems, shared his recipe. What you're gonna need, two liters of water, one cup of brown sugar. In this case, I used golden yellow sugar. Uh, one cup of coarse salt, I used kosher. Uh, half a cup of maple syrup, four bay leaves, four cloves of garlic, a third of a cup of soy sauce, one teaspoon of ginger, one teaspoon of dried thyme, and one teaspoon of pepper. And what you're gonna do is you're gonna bring that all to a slow boil. 
and you are going to stir that until it's dissolved. We leave our gold eye in there for a couple hours. Now the longer you leave it in there, the more salty it's going to get. This was a nice one. Another smoker, James Rogaway, from the wonderful Footprint Outdoors YouTube channel, shared his recipe. Here's the ingredients for the brine. I will use uh, six gold eye, frozen, and I'll use one cup of the pickling salt, half a cup of the brown sugar, one quarter cup of the maple syrup, one eighth of a cup of ground pepper, one tablespoon of rosemary, I'll use 10 to 12 of the bay leaves, I'll use one tablespoon of, sorry, two tablespoons of garlic powder, you can use minced garlic as well, I'm substituting with garlic powder, one third of a cup of soy sauce, to all of this I will add six cups of boiled water, hot water, to ensure that the pickling salt and the other ingredients dissolve. I will then add cold water to it once everything's dissolved, just to make sure that I'm not adding fish to the, the hot water. And I will put all this in a very large Ziploc bag that'll hold the six fish. The process is basically the same. Once the fish are caught, they're immediately scaled and gutted and then frozen. They may stay frozen for four to six weeks before the next step. The frozen fish are put in water to thaw and then cleaned once more. They are placed in a brine mixture for 10 to 12 hours and then placed on rods and hung in the smokehouse. The fire is started. Only hardwoods are used since softwoods can add an unwanted flavor to the fish. And once it is established, wet ashes are piled on to produce the smoke. The ashes are kept on for about four hours, after which the fire is stoked again for another two hours to cook the fish. The fish are left in the smoker until the fire goes out. The fish typically go in the smoker one afternoon and are taken out the following morning. Of course, those are the basics. Details like what is in the brine mixture or the design of the smoker are still closely guarded. And there you have it. The little fish from Manitoba that no one wanted has reached a secure, exalted spot in the culinary world with the help of a failed butcher. Wow. It's hard to comprehend how a high-end entree in many Manitoba restaurants was once considered dog food. No kidding. What's our next fish story? Well, this one I produced. It's about a culturally significant dish which resonates with many communities across the world. Pickled herring. It's a delicacy for many cultural groups. I know it's served on Jewish holidays, uh, on New Year's in Poland. I've had them before at Ukrainian restaurants and weddings, and even Ray and Jerry's always serves them. But for Nordic countries like Sweden, the herring has been tied to their culture for centuries. We were fortunate enough to listen and observe a demonstration from the women of the Swedish Cultural Association of Winnipeg as they pickled herring one afternoon. Former Manitoba Food History Project member Sarah Story interviewed them as they were jarring the fish. It was just such a great experience. We recorded some great stories, and I'm eager to share it with you and our listeners. We're excited to hear it. Let's have a listen. That's Manitoba Food History Project member Sarah Story speaking with Marie Klovchuk and Sonia Lundström, the president of the Swedish Cultural Association of Manitoba. Today, Story is observing Klovchuk and Lundström busily making a traditional dish for an upcoming cultural gathering. 
This year, Swedish Canadians from across the country are gathering in Lagdabani, Manitoba to celebrate the summer and their culture. For our reunion, Marie, everybody likes to make food. We eat what you can't imagine. And, well, that's it. Play the accordion, dance, sing, cook! Part of that culture, of course, is food. And one of the most important cultural dishes in the Swedish community is what they're making today, pickled herring. The story of Swedish peoples and herring has long been intertwined. According to food historian Jen Oyvind Schiffan, since the Middle Ages, herring has been among the most important food staples in large parts of Europe and propelled the Swedish economy over centuries. From the late medieval times to the 16th century, herring trade centers in the south of Sweden were among the most important food providers in Europe. In the History of Nordic People, published in 1555, the archbishop, cartographer, and author Oloius Magnus states that along the Scanian coasts, people caught and salted so much herring that it supplied most of Europe's need for fish. That trend continued well into the 16th century, with the west coast of Sweden becoming another epicenter of the herring trade, where foreign fishermen were allowed to come, salt, and sell fish to their heart's delight. By the 1700s, the herring draft was so abundant that fishermen would often run out of barrels of salt, which led to another commodity, the extraction of fish oil for lamps. According to historian Rolf Erikson, Fish oil became the number one source of lamp oil for Paris and perhaps provided the fuel for its moniker, the City of Lights. However, the waste from the fish oil refineries became so bad in the late 1700s that the majority of herring left for cleaner waters and the fish oil trade died out. Yet the herring trade continued and so did ways of preserving and preparing them for consumption. Because the fish would spoil so rapidly, traditionally the quickest and most common way of preserving herring was to salt it. Herring could also be smoked and fermented, but eventually the most popular way to preserve and prepare herring was to pickle it. Kesa Warg's cookbook from 1755 contains one of the earliest recipes for pickled herring, where Warg instructs the reader to carefully wash the fish in fresh water to remove the salt, then fry them on a grid over a fire. Once the fish is cold, the herring are put into jars with bay leaves, whole peppercorns, cloves, and then covered with god attica, or spirit vinegar. There are different ways to pickle herring, but as Marie Klovchuk explains, salted or unsalted will determine the first steps. If the fish is fresh, then it's first salted to get rid of the moisture. More likely, the fish is already salted and needs to soak in fresh water in order for the salt to be removed. First, let the herring sit in water to get some of that salt out. Okay. Then, with the brine, it would probably have to sit for much longer. Maybe okay. Close to a week. How does this differ from when you were making it in Sweden with your mother? Oh, yeah, of course, I'd, I'd be buying the salted herring from the store. Okay. Well, you can buy it in a, in a, in a can, actually. Um, and it's salted, and you just rinse out off the water and chop it up, cook your brine, then, and it would sit there for mm -hmm. probably about four or five days. And would okay. Yeah. Born in Uppsala, Sweden, making pickled herring is a tradition Klovchuk has preserved since coming to Canada in 1986. And uh, I try to keep my Swedish heritage alive, and all of my, my family is still in Sweden, so I do go back to okay. family. 
but um, to have a hearing at Christmas, Easter, and Midsummer for sure. Okay. That's a must. Yeah. And, and, and the more kinds of herring, the better. Okay. You know, like my mom, she would cook different rinds, making different kinds. Some would have onion in them, some would have dill, or like a mustard sauce in it. I haven't put any dill in this, ship. I put? No, no, no. Only that you're crying too, aren't you? <laughs> no, that would be a different different kind of herring. Okay. <laughs> Sonia Lundström, president of the Swedish Cultural Association of Manitoba, remembers her father as the one who taught her about herring. Oh, my God. It wasn't my mom. It was my dad. And he was in there. And my dad was as comfortable in the kitchen as anyone. I mean, and my, my dad was a hard rock miner, but he could yeah. still could do everything in the kitchen. That's kind of Swedish, isn't it? The man could do everything. My, uh, my family came from Yuk my Swedish came from Yukmuk, uh, Sweden in 1913, uh, six weeks after the sinking of the Titanic, and we're given land at Eriksdale. And uh, where they had to create their own home and totally live off the land, and which they did. And and but no matter how little they had, they always had herrings, <laughs> herrings and hardtack. I, I remember, and my dad talked about it. And he was only a little child, but he remembers the herrings and hardtack. And they'd get it in a creek off Logan Avenue, and they'd make the herrings because it reminded them so much at home. They wanted to go back. And so my dad brought that memory. Oh, I'm going to cry now. And we would make the herrings and play the music. And herrings was our main thing. <laughs> and it was like, the, it was the symbol of Sweden. Although he's just a child, it brought back memories to grandma and grandpa, and then through the kids, and then through us. I'm not answering that. Oh, yeah, and every year, and our whole family, I mean, to have the hearings, it's not just the food, it's the memories of it, and the music, and all the good times we had making the hearings. Okay, so I'm starting another jar with those there, Marie, that you've got cut. Yep. Right. And then you cook oh. the brine, and, uh, and you add it that way. In this case, we've already, we're using herrings that have already been marinated. Yeah. And we're cooking our own marinade first because it's slightly different brine mm -hmm. than what we have here. The brine for pickled herring is usually made from one part vinegar, two parts sugar, and three parts water with vegetables and seasoning added in. Um, here's the recipe. Uh, it, oh, right there. Yellow onions uh, sliced thin. Uh, made with a marinade with sugar and crushed allspice. You leave it for 60 minutes and then you put that in with uh, the water and vinegar in proportions and I made eight times the recipe for, uh, we're doing for 120 now and Gumber and I did seven jars last time. As for the most crucial ingredient, the fish itself, today that comes straight from Sweden. Yeah. You know what, and there's different herrings from different places, okay. I tell you. The Swedish and Icelandic are—they're the thickest, yeah. and they're the—they are the best. The fish was brought by Gunver Larsson, a recipient of the Manitoba 150 Award. Gunver and her husband Carl have been at the forefront of Swedish cultural activities in Manitoba since arriving in 1958. You no, know, my husband was electrician, and I was a good opening for electricians in Kalmar at that time. Yeah. So that is why we came here, and then we continued from then on our own. But Gunnar, you, you and Carl had intended to stay here for, was it three years? Just yeah, that was it. All your people did. <laughs> and he thought you'd be going back. Oh. And we just got stuck here. Uh -huh. 
1970, the Folklorama Multicultural Festival was created as a celebration of Manitoba's centennial. Gunvor saw this as an opportunity to promote Swedish culture in Manitoba and organized the first Swedish pavilion here. However, at the time, there was no direct importer of Swedish food or cultural products, so Gunvor also took that upon herself, opening a store which would cater to the Nordic communities of Winnipeg. When we had the Folklorama, everyone asked for things, what to buy, must know what to be bought. Then I thought, they said, what time I do open up a store? So that is how I did it. Wow. Thanks for Grandma. <laughs> <laughs> there was no store like Gumber's store. No kidding. She had gallons of lingonberries. Yeah. And you bought the Raya kits. Yes. Gunvor's store, the Scandinavian import boutique, was first established on Lilac Street in Winnipeg in 1970 and ran for 10 years. Her boutique shop became an import hub for Swedes visiting or moving to the city, including many Swedish hockey players. The store contained imported goods, clothing, special Scandinavian housewares, and cultural decorations. The back of the shop was a social area where, as she put it, the coffee was always on, and delicious homemade breads were offered to make visitors feel at home. Gunvor Larsson also taught Swedish language classes, founded a number of Scandinavian dance groups, was a regular contributor to the Canadian Swedish cultural newspaper, the Swedish Press, and was an author of several popular cookbooks of Swedish recipes. I call Gunvor the matriarch of the Swedish community in Winnipeg. I also use the word rock star. So that's another <laughs> term, yes. A lot of the Swedish uh, club members that you meet now, they took Swedish lessons from Gunvor, you know, something like 30 years ago or 20 years wow. ago. And This woman is a woman of spirit. <laughs> <laughs> I think so. The Larsen story is one of many Swedish newcomers who have been coming to Canada since the late 1800s, when the prairies opened up to homesteaders and Winnipeg became the Nordic gateway to the West. Most Swedes passed through Winnipeg as part of the immigration process. The Canadian government did their best to attract Swedish immigrants to Canada through advertisements and agents in Sweden, setting aside tracts of land in Manitoba for settlements. The vast majority of the first to arrive settled in the country and were involved in rural life and agriculture. Why were people attracted to Because they were asked to come. They didn't have a choice. No they were told to come. There was no choice. Oh, okay. You're coming. And they were given a free land called the Homesteader. And the Swedes were the invisible immigrants who went wherever there was uh, wherever there was a job, and you know, they had such an attitude. According to historian Eleanor Barr, for some of the first Swedish immigrants, it was a struggle to adapt to their new environment. The isolationist and exclusionary nature of the social and political systems, coupled with the sheer vastness of the prairies, led to culture shock and homesickness for some. My grandmother, when she came, um, she said in Sweden that they, there were posters talking about Canada okay. and Manitoba as the land of milk and honey. Oh, okay. And so that was very appealing to her. <laughs> Little did she know when she got here. There was no <laughs> it was minus 40. And yes, you know, yeah. <laughs> yeah. hot. That's Elaine Friesen, who can trace her roots back to some of the original Ericsdale, Manitoba settlers. Both my parents were uh, born in Canada, yeah. but um, their first language for both of them was Swedish. So all oh, of my okay. grandparents were born in Sweden and okay. we just kept close 
uh, contact with them. My grandparents were part of the founding members of the lodge in Ericsdale. And so that would have been in the early 1900s. Wow. When my grandparents were here, it was was a, you know, a thriving, there was a thriving Swedish community. We were the Swedish capital of Canada. Okay, (laughs) because the most Swedes were here. Of the Swedes who settled in Manitoba, nearly half lived in and around Winnipeg, which remained the Swedish capital of Canada until the 1940s. Winnipeg's Logan Avenue is especially known for Swedish immigrants, sporting many Scandinavian-run rooming houses, hotels, and businesses. The rest spread westward to places like Eriksdale, Hilltop, Ericsson, and Smoland, or eastward to the Lactabani Riverland area, the location of this year's gathering. Despite initial hardships, many Swedish immigrants adapted to their new home, going on to make significant contributions in Manitoba political, social, and economic life. Back in the kitchen, we're almost ready to sample the herring. I'm sure this is going to be okay for Saturday when we're going to serve it up in uh, Lactabani and Arnett. That's great. So it gives it a freshness? Oh, yeah. Maybe. Yeah, you know, it's, um, I'm not sure where these herrings were made. It's delicious and everything, but... There are different ways to serve herring. There's the SOS way. Yes, just like the ABBA song. The Swedish appetizer stands for Smar Ust och Sil, which describes its main ingredients, butter, cheese, and herring. It is also usually served with schnapps aquavit to wash it down. Another popular way of serving pickled herring is as part of a celebration smorgasbord. Rather than a buffet, the Swedish smorgasbord is eaten in a specific order and often begins with multiple varieties of pickled herring to kick off the party. It's a main thing, but we're also having the boiled potatoes, okay, boiled and dilled with the chives, and lots of butter and hardtack and cheese, just like it says on the picture. Mm -hmm. I couldn't believe the picture's right there of everything. And then, in case people don't like herrings, because not everybody's had the opportunity to enjoy this wonderful experience. <laughs> uh, um, we're getting ham and coleslaw. Okay. Okay, and uh, rye bread, regular rye bread, because we got all our Swedish tablecloths, and this is <laughs> this is a party on wheels. <laughs> yeah. Do you always have this in Lactaboni? Is it like no, no, no we go wherever the Swedes are. Okay. <laughs> Swedish was once the language, main language spoken in Lactaborn. Really? Yeah, because the most amount of things that Swedes could do, the Swedes went wherever there was work and adventure. Logging, uh, lumbering, building, mining, they could do it all. Mm-hmm. Building houses, a, a farm, mm-hmm. and and so uh, they, it was a major Swedish community. But then, you know, they only survived, so, so then they'd go out to other places and they came to Red Lake. That's what I know about, to okay. mine. And a lot of them wound up in uh, Vancouver or Alberta. And uh, people are coming all the way from Thompson tomorrow. Oh, wow. For our so event. this is Did a big Saturday, yeah. But it's, it's the spirits, you know. Okay. And we're going to sing our drinking song and it's celebrating, you know, our forefathers and our Swedishness and everything through song. <laughs> and we're also going to have lots of music. And because it's a get together of Swedes and their food. Mm-hmm and their history and their culture through through dancing, music, and cultural events, the the Parade of Maple and Dancing of Maple. The celebration Lundstrom is referring to, the one they're preparing the herring for, is Midsommar, or the Midsummer Celebration. That often takes place on the weekend nearest to June 24th, 
believed to be the longest day of the year. In northern Sweden, traditionally this is the time of the midnight sun, when the sun never sets and people stay out all night. Homes and churches are decorated with wildflower gardens and flowering tree branches, and an elaborately decorated maypole takes center stage. All night long, young and old, dressed in regional costumes, dance around the pole. Midsummer is, uh, uh, I think it's originally pagan, and it's about celebrating the longest day of the year and our abundance of nature at that time. And it kicks off the summer for the people in Sweden. It's the beginning of their eight weeks of holiday all summer. And it's said that <laughs> that's their time to get together and party, and then they just go all over the place after. <laughs> sort of, they've done it now. And all the holidays begin then there, and it's a celebration uh, by getting together. It may be in a home, it may be in a small group, or it may be in a large community, okay, with the music, and oftentimes a maypole parade to dance. A maypole, right? Even a family group will have a maypole. Now, when we were young, the couple and us, we usually went in the bike with a few Swedish moms for the party, but on the way, we usually have picnic in the woods with the blanket off, and you have your shots, vodka, and having a picnic on your own. Then you continue to the place where you were dancing all night. Then you came home four or five in the morning, and you continue the party. There's no denying the cultural importance of herring in the Swedish diaspora. The oily, silvery fish that propelled Sweden's economy throughout the centuries has become a focal point of countless celebrations bringing together communities to preserve tradition. We always associate the herrings as special, you know, because they came in such a long way. Um, so I can just yeah, take yeah, the sure. yeah. And 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 the, our Swedish people in the community, uh, the other loggers and miners and people, would get together to have them because yeah. it was so special. Did you make some herring for yeah. your good work with your mom, maybe, or with your grandmother? Yeah, yeah. it was just the way of life. Yeah. So, I mean, you never think anything about it. That was the way you did it. This party I mean, an, an excuse for good parties. <laughs> I went from being breastfed to eating them. <laughs> I'm not kidding you. It was hot. Yeah, it was a good Isn't that authentic? Each of the women preparing herring today has their own story. But their stories also reflect the experience of many first-generation immigrants and newcomers to Canada who've had to build the necessary foundations, whether it be by business or cultural association, in order to preserve cultural traditions for another generation. You've been listening to Preserves, a Manitoba food history podcast produced by myself, Kent Davies, hosted by myself and Janice Thiessen, written and narrated by myself and Henry Vandenberg, interviewed by Sarah Story. Kimberly Moore creates the photos and images that accompany each podcast. Our theme music is by Robert Kenning. Preserves is recorded at the University of Winnipeg Oral History Center. You can check out the OHC and the work that we do at oralhistorycenter.ca. For more Manitoba Food History Project content, information, and events, go to manitobafoodhistory.ca. We're also on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. If you have a Manitoba food story and you want to share it, contact us by clicking on the contact link on the website. Preserves is made possible from a grant from the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. Thanks for listening. <laughs>